Hello, and welcome to the City of Truth. Episode 9, Religious Claims, Part 1. What I said at the end of the last episode is incorrect. I was planning on doing a recap of our model this week, but I've elected to skip that for now. If time allows, I intend to go over it at the very end. But there's no sense in getting bogged down. We're more than halfway there now. As of right now, episode 15 is intended to be the beautiful idea. Okay, so this is where things are going to get a bit hairy. By considering the truth value of religious claims, we are potentially stepping on the toes of a lot of people. In fact, toes aren't the right metaphor. We're stepping on their heart. A person's religion can mean a great deal to them. It's understandable that any criticism of that would be difficult. Look, we want to work towards this beautiful idea. That idea involves a concept of God and the world that aligns with the reasoning we followed so far. But it also goes farther. There is a specific conception of God that is needed, and that is part of a specific religious tradition. This is my mental model, and it is necessary to communicate the idea. Now, I could just baldly assert that we're going along those lines. I've considered that, but just jumping like that would leave an intellectual gap in our model. As I said at the beginning, this podcast is primarily about the ideas needed to arrive at our destination. I don't want to skip a portion of that. Anyone following along in a way where this is helping them shape their mental model won't appreciate that, and the podcast will remain incomplete. This is all in service of coming to my beautiful idea. It's part of a plan. We are trying to assert something positive about reality, that it has property X. In doing this, we have to deny the contrary, that the denial of property X is wrong. Many people today are afraid of positive assertions. I can understand why. Unless I manage to convince the listener, every time I make a positive assertion, I lose the confidence of a portion of the people who disagree. This is especially true once you stray beyond the mainstream mental model. Of course, a listener doesn't have to agree with everything I say to continue listening, but keeping an open mind about it might make things more interesting. We don't ordinarily do a comparative analysis of religion today, especially to assess whether one is true. That's pretty strange by today's standards, despite being a pretty common intellectual pursuit in the past. It's hard to know where to begin. We should try and do so rationally and without preconceptions. 9.1. Knowing who instead of what. Does God want to be known? If not, then there's nothing we can do to know him beyond what we've already covered. If so then clearly there is no limiting factor on the spread of that knowledge. God could convey it in whatever manner he chose. Now it should go without saying that God does not come down on a cloud of glory to each individual person and give them a nice long lecture. Never mind that this wouldn't work for a whole host of reasons, not least that whatever came down from the cloud wouldn't be God anyway, as he's immaterial, so it'd be an illusion. So assuming that he has intervened in history, It would take the form of one or more particularly notable events in which he has chosen to reveal himself publicly, and not the form of private revelations to each individual. So has God intervened in history? That is our central question. 
Let us assume again for a moment that he has. If he has, what sort of form would we expect it to take, and how would it manifest itself today? Well, it seems obvious that if he intervened in history with the express purpose of people coming to know him, the information he provided would come with a divine claim and be knowable. The people who experienced this would have told others about it and spread the word. After all, God would know who would do this and would pick accordingly. The claim, obviously, would not contradict reason and what we know of God naturally, because the same God is the provider of reason as well. God doesn't want us to be irrational. If he did, he wouldn't have made us rational. So we would be talking about a revelation provided by God to mankind in one or more events in history that then have been spread across the globe by its adherents. In other words, a monotheistic, revelatory religion. There are many religions that propose some sort of monotheistic concept of God. We can't go into detail on all of them, but we can at least consider the major ones, as well as discuss a method of discernment which we can use to pursue those major religions in greater detail. Some religious traditions overlap. For instance, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all part of one tradition. This is likewise true of Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism. These also have countless little offshoots that blur the lines between a separate religion versus a tradition within a religion. For instance, Mormonism teaches that God has a body, that there are multiple gods, that there's a planet called Kolob, which is basically heaven, and it has its own separate body of scripture, the Book of Mormon. Yet it accepts the Bible, believes Jesus was the Messiah, and so on. So is it a type of Christianity, or something different? Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that God is a trinity, which is mainstream Christian belief. There's a school or two in Hinduism, like Charvaka, that is overtly atheistic. Buddhism has very little to say on God or gods at all in some schools. It can get complicated. The sheer number of systems proposed can be daunting, and may play a role in why most people kind of throw their hands up in the air and default to what's easiest. But let's not do that. It's not hopeless. A big problem is not an unsolvable problem. First, though, we need to consider the concept of faith itself. 9.2. Faith There are three broad categories of knowledge. The first is experience. That's pretty self-explanatory. The second is logic. It's just what we can figure out through thinking. Math largely falls under this category. We first acquire mathematical concepts through experience, but after we know the rules, we really can learn new things simply by thinking really hard about them. The third is faith. Now, what does faith mean? It doesn't mean blind assent, and it doesn't mean getting worked up emotionally either. It means reliable testimony. We all accept this as a source of knowledge. How do you know that your parents are your parents? You don't have memories of the experience of being born, thankfully. And you can't logically conclude that they are. The reason you know this is because your parents said they were your parents. Other people said it too. It's on your birth certificate. These are considered reliable sources of testimony, and so you accept that these people are my parents is a true statement. And unless there's some weird conspiracy afoot, they are. You really do know that. You've concluded it was true, and it is true, and you have a good reason to believe it is true, and that reason for believing it is properly connected to the truth. So it is real knowledge. A fair bit of what we know is from testimony or faith. I've never been to Australia, 
but I'm quite certain it's there. Now I could theoretically learn these things through other sources too. I could go experience Australia. But until I have, I believe in it on faith. Under faith, there is also a secondary assumption. Information provided by multiple independent sources is trustworthy. At first glance, this appears to be not only a rather bold assumption, but one that flies in the face of scientific evidence. Take, for example, an experiment sometimes done in criminology classes. While students are sitting in class, a man will burst through the door, snatch a purse, and run off. For the sake of preserving the evidence, no one is allowed to speak to one another. Each person is then questioned one by one. Inevitably, they give wildly different descriptions of the man. Some say he was in jeans. Others say he was in shorts. Some say he had a red cap and others a blue beanie. The various witnesses actually agree on very little. Now, a collective summary of these can get you closer to the truth. If 90% of people saw a red baseball cap, that's probably correct. But you could easily have multiple independent sources that contradict one another. Or what's worse, multiple independent sources that state the same incorrect thing. Two of the students are sure he was in khakis when he wore jeans, for instance. And we've all heard of police cases where a victim is certain of their attacker's identity, and then they were proven incorrect by DNA or other evidence. Heck, multiple people have claimed to see a UFO at the same time, or a ghost. Does that mean we have to accept UFOs or ghosts? So let's back up a bit. As psychologists are fond of saying, the purpose of memory is not simply to recall things in the past, but to provide functional utility for the future. Our memories attempt to retain what is useful, and discard the rest. This makes them unreliable at times. Above all, it makes them unreliable when it comes to incidental details of an event. Let's think of the classroom purse snatcher again, and let's say that there are widespread reports of a political dissident group called the Red Hat Snatchers. Everyone has this in mind and is a bit on guard for purse snatchers. If that were the case, how many people would have noticed the color of the thief's hat? I would guess all, or nearly all. Why? Because suddenly that detail is quite relevant. It's no longer incidental. Whether he has genes is incidental, so we don't notice this. Instead, we notice a guy who is a thief. We retain the important details. And then our brain uses our prior experiences to fill in the details that weren't saved. That filling in is where the errors come from. The stereotype in one person's head of a thief is of a guy in baggy jeans. For another, it's shorts. This isn't conscious, of course. Our brain just does it. Sometimes our brains just use whatever random details it wants for no discernible reason. Now in those criminal cases of mistaken identity, often you only have a single witness, so that doesn't create problems with our assumption. You also often have some trauma. One of the relevant details that our mind tries to sort out is whether we will be victims again. Now the criminal's particular individual features are probably not relevant to that. The overall type of person he appears to be, maybe, or at least it's the same thing to our brain. Think about instead if you were attacked by a dog. You might develop an instinctive fear of dogs, but you probably don't have a distinct fear exclusively of dogs that have a small black patch of fur near their back right leg, even if the dog that bit you had one. It's not relevant to the type. So you put the victim before a lineup, and the victim is then told that one of these people in front of them is the person who harmed them. This would trigger every biological alarm bell ever. Immediately, the brain goes into overdrive, trying to pinpoint who exactly is the threat and it makes the closest association that it can. Thinking that it has obtained new and important information, 
It then locks that idea into the mind. That is the face of the threat. What was once irrelevant is suddenly the only important question. Add to that any subtle clues, intentional or otherwise, that other people give off, and it's easy to see how a false association can be made. Lastly, we have our UFOs and ghosts. First, there is a very important issue, which is whether the parties really are independent. They may not all be separate witnesses to the event. They may be bullied into one point of view, or accidentally end up framing those irrelevant side details into a mold offered by another. This guy says he saw his dead Aunt Charlotte. I saw... something. I couldn't say what. Maybe it was just the trick of the light, but I definitely saw something. Yeah, I guess it had the vague shape of a person. Could be a woman. I wouldn't know his aunt, so I couldn't identify her, but it's possible. This distinction between the key points and irrelevant detail clears up every memory issue I know of. Sure, the classroom disagrees on what the thief looked like, but does anyone there deny that someone came in and stole a woman's purse? No. Sure, there's confusion about the face of the man who committed the crime, but all the witnesses agree they saw a crime. And when a bunch of people claim separately to have seen a UFO, they absolutely did. It was something unidentified in the sky. That doesn't mean it was aliens, but I guarantee they saw something. All of these supposedly dubious cases, then, boil down to this. The key elements of an event, when universally acclaimed by multiple separate witnesses, are almost certainly true. Okay, sure, we can grant that occasionally some group of people will mess with you, but then they're not independent, are they? And if five people all said that they saw, say, a car accident on Main Street today, is it sensible to conclude that there is a car accident conspiracy, or that there was a car crash on Main Street? Obviously, knowledge of the event only extends insofar as the reliability of the witnesses, but that's where multiple independent sources becomes useful. Let's consider one more hypothetical before moving on. Once upon a time, there were ten brothers. They had a beautiful sister whom they loved dearly. There was also a king of their kingdom, whose cruelty was only surpassed by his rotten egg of a son. One day, a man arrives at their home and kidnaps their beloved sister. He wore no disguise and walked in the open daylight. They chase the man, but they're unable to catch him. Immediately, they go about their village, proclaiming to everyone they meet that their sister was taken. What's more, they reveal that none other than the prince himself was the abductor. Hundreds of villagers saw the man run by them as well. They are certain it was the prince. The next day, their sister is found dead. The ten brothers begin raising a gang to bring the prince to justice but soldiers disperse the crowd and arrest the brothers. They are brought before a judge, a cousin of the cruel prince. They are told to abandon their claim that the prince has done this crime, but none will recant their sworn testimony. The prince had killed their sister, and they would sooner die than deny it. The judge then subjects each of them to cruel tortures in public. After days of this, the king publicly rebukes them. He offers them one last chance. Recant your claim that it was the prince, or die. They each spit on the ground defiantly, and swear by the throne of heaven that the prince himself had taken her. The brothers each die one by one, but each of them, without exception, goes to their grave proclaiming what they had seen. Not one recants. They had seen with their own eyes that the prince had taken their sister. No torture could force them to forsake their principles, or their love for her. The brothers have died, but the word remains, and half the village still remembers what they saw that day. So tell me, dear listener, 
Do you think the prince kidnapped the sister? Is the testimony of the ten brothers, and of the hundreds of villagers who saw part of the incident, sufficient for you? Does the brothers' unanimous claim, and their constancy under torture and threat of death, convince you? It convinces me. This is the most extreme case, but I think it illustrates the point. The brothers could not offer any hard proof of their claim, but it doesn't take much from us to believe them. I want you to keep this story in mind. We will return to it later. But for now, I think that gives us an adequate synopsis of faith as a source of knowledge. We now have to consider possible sources of faith. There are, to my mind, three broad systems to consider that propose the existence of one god. The first is what we might call folk religion. The second is the Hindu traditions. The third is the Abrahamic religions. Note that we will first be speaking of what these religions claim about themselves, and not really their historicity. 9.3. Folk Religions Folk religions offer up a wide variety of mythical stories about the origins of humanity and its development, as well as the creation and nature of the world. These stories are often passed down by oral tradition, and are generally not meant to convey historical facts as we understand them. Rather, these systems take local culture, folk tales, traditions, and moral beliefs, as well as deep truths understood about human nature, and package them together into a convenient little bundle that fits a particular people. They are perhaps best considered as cultural expressions of the fundamental religious impulse. They may have some degree of shared origin with other stories and other cultures, but they have often mutated over time into something unrecognizable from their origins. They are, in a word, natural religions. They are not revelatory. They do not make the specific and forceful claim that God came down and told people stuff. They may be believed with fierce devotion, but they're wrapped in mystery and metaphor, culturally specific, and not ever intended to be universal or provide a full view of the human condition. It is for a specific people in a specific time and place. If there is no such thing as a divine revelation, if God has never spoken to mankind in history, then they are probably the best that mankind can cobble together on its own. They provide the social utility of religion, convey moral principles, transmit the collective cultural knowledge of a people, and don't really intend to do more than that. As such, the claim that they provide anything over and above the natural knowledge we can attain about God through reasoning is tenuous. In those rare cases where such a claim has been made, we would have to assess that on an individual basis by the method we will discuss. 9.4. Hindu Traditions Hinduism isn't a religion. It's like 12 religions. It's really, really complicated. If you had to sum it up, it's really a religious and philosophical tradition where various schools of thought developed around the same few central concepts. Concepts like karma, atman, brahman, and the like. In this way, it's perhaps more like ancient Greek philosophical schools mixed with old-world paganism than anything else. The two are probably rooted in the same tradition, after all. At its core, Hinduism collectively centers on the Vedas, their religious texts, though there are even some schools of Hinduism which reject their own scriptures. Like I said, it's a broad thing. They believe these texts to be revealed by God or the gods. Most Hindus believe in a supreme reality or fundamental principle behind the universe, sometimes identified with consciousness and sometimes not. Brahman is the name for this supreme reality. Atman is the name for that supreme consciousness which is either the higher self or Brahman or both. 
Karma is a sort of accumulated spiritual ledger that results in reincarnated souls expressing themselves in different states. The differing interpretations make pinpointing the specifics impossible for a broad overview, and this podcast isn't a study of Hinduism, so I'm not going to go crazy into it here. The emphasis, however, tends to be on the unity of reality, in the sense that all that exists, or all that is alive, is part of a singular unified whole that transcends our apparent distinctions. It seems clear that Hinduism developed out of a regional polytheism over time, so the emphasis on transcendent unity is not surprising. It's what made Hinduism Hinduism in the first place. The compatibility of Hinduism with our conclusions is a bit difficult to assert one way or another. There is a version of Hinduism that is compatible with our conclusions, called Vedanta, and even then it's only some subschools within that. But most versions aren't. Pantheism, or the belief that God and creation are one and the same, does not fit with our prime mover, and some version of pantheism is found in most Hindu systems. We know from reason that God is distinct from created things. That is the very fact that led us to conclude that there had to be a God in the first place. Its scriptures are also quite different from those of the Abrahamic religions. They're more akin to the ancient pagan myths mixed with prescribed rituals, hymns, and philosophical musings. Some figures and events may be historical, but the stories are intentionally fantastical. Folk religion provides conceptual myth. Abrahamic faiths provide historical claims. Hinduism is somewhere in between. They straddle a line between historical claim and conceptual myth. We do have here some version of what we've talked about. We have a revelation professing to be from God that explains the nature of himself and the universe, that makes universal claims about reality and the human condition, and that recognizes God as the supreme principle. It would be fair, then, I think, to categorize Hinduism as a revelatory religion, and even in some schools as monotheistic, though it tends towards pantheism. 9.5. Abrahamic Religions The Abrahamic religions are those that claim their historical origin in the person of Abraham, who lived about 4,000 years ago in the city of Ur and the Levant. This applies above all to three religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Judaism makes the claim that God revealed himself to Abraham, and through him prepared for himself a people. These people receive from God the law, the prophets, books of wisdom, and a temple in which to worship him. It too is a revelatory religion, professing a single God who created all things. Like Hinduism, Judaism has undergone some pretty massive shifts in thinking from its original system, in part due to historical political realities. God in the Tanakh, or the Christian Old Testament, offers a covenant to his people to establish their own nation in the Holy Land. He promises to preserve them in this place, and preserve his temple so long as they're faithful to him. They repeatedly violated his covenant with predictably disastrous results, as the biblical text claims. The culmination of this was the final destruction of the temple and dispersion of the Jewish people in the 1st and 2nd centuries AD. The Jews remained without a nation from pagan Rome until after World War II. They still don't have the temple back, and so they had to improvise a bit. Ancient Judaism evolved into Rabbinic Judaism. The central texts of Rabbinic Judaism have been the Mishnah and then the Talmud, which are rabbinical commentaries and debates on the Tanakh. Variations of Judaism also developed. As a result, modern Judaism, with few to no exceptions, 
doesn't bear all that much of a resemblance to the belief system and religious practices of the Temple Jews. Christianity claims to be the fulfillment of Judaism. The Old Testament makes numerous references to the coming of a Messiah, belief in whom was near universal in Temple Judaism. The Messiah was meant to free God's people from bondage, be a light to the nations, and be the hope of the Gentiles, ushering in a new covenant and a new kingdom. Christianity believes that this prophesied role was fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth, who was not only the Messiah, but God himself made man. He preached for three and a half years, during which time he instituted the foundations of the Christian church. He was crucified and died for the salvation of mankind, and then was resurrected on the third day, to prove his divinity. These are claimed as facts of the historical order, as a divinely given revelation about the one God in a similar fashion to the claims about Abraham and Moses. Christianity teaches that Temple Judaism was superseded by Christianity, which is the reason for the destruction of the Temple shortly after the life of Jesus. The disciples of Jesus wrote down summaries of his teachings in the four Gospels, and also wrote letters to various churches in different cities, though their primary job was to go around setting up churches and preaching the Word. These were compiled into a single book known as the New Testament, and is believed to be a divinely inspired revelation. Now, whether Christ and his apostles set up a single, unified, hierarchical, structured church, or a larger and looser body of believers, is a hotly contested issue in Christianity for the last five centuries. Protestantism claims the latter. Catholicism claims the former. The Greek churches claim somewhere in between. Regardless, it meets our definition of a revelatory religion from the one God. Lastly, we come to Islam. Islam likewise claims to be a continuation of the Abrahamic system, and even of the primitive Jewish and Christian systems, though it claims at least in part that their traditions have become corrupted. Their central figure is Muhammad, a 7th century AD warlord, who claimed to be a prophet sent by God to correct the mistakes found in the Jewish and Christian religions. He dictated a book called the Quran, the Holy Book of Islam, which he claimed to receive from an angel. Islam's central tenet is that there is one God and that Muhammad is his prophet. It is centered on the cities of Mecca and Medina, where Muhammad operated. Like Judaism, it contains a law handed down from on high, which is binding on Muslims. This, combined with the fact that Muhammad was both a temporal and spiritual leader, means that Islam is meant to be a total system that directs not just individual lives, but the state and worship as well. The predominant division in Islam is between Sunni and Shiite, though there are others. Immediately upon the death of Muhammad, there was a dispute about who should succeed him. The first follower of Muhammad, Abu Bakr, or the closest blood relative and appointed successor, Ali. Abu Bakr won the day politically. The two factions were briefly united again when Ali became the fourth caliph, but he was soon assassinated, leading to a permanent split. What started as a mere political divide developed into a religious one over time. Islam, and most notably Sunni Islam, was ruled by a caliph until the First World War. In Western terms, consider it one part pope with a dash of emperor. At times it held real power, while at other times the caliph was a mere figurehead. But the restoration of the caliphate is no mere side issue to Islam. It was as essential to the religion as the papacy is to Catholics. Regardless, Islam also meets our required definition. 9.6 Evaluating Claims 
In all cases above, I am simplifying, sometimes massively so. We aren't getting into the differing eschatology of Wahhabism versus Twelver Shiism or the various sacramental views of Anabaptists and Calvinists. It's just a broad overview. We are asking a simple question. Has the one God spoken to us in history? If not, something like folk religion is probably close to the mark. If so, then we should evaluate the claimants. Now, on what grounds can you evaluate such bold claims? First, it should be abundantly obvious that any idiot can claim he talked to God or has discovered the secrets of life. What we need is a method to distinguish a true claim from a false one. As far as I can tell, there are two. First, what is claimed should be in compliance with reason. It may go utterly beyond what we can know by reason. In fact, it almost certainly must, since it's the means by which we're supposed to come to know God, which we can't do by reason alone. But it can never contradict reason. We must be very careful to give proper consideration to each claim, and not dismiss it out of hand for this if a claim seems weird, but it is absolutely a legitimate criterion. Secondly, God can validate a claim by giving us sufficient motives to believe in its divine origin. Okay, you got two guys, both claim to be sent by God. They teach opposite doctrines. Both can't be right. So they each say a prayer. One of the guys has a light shine down on him from the sky and starts floating. The other dude bursts into flames. That'd be pretty definitive, right? A divine claim can only be properly substantiated by an act that only the divinity can do. This means the temporary suspension of the natural laws. It means miracles and prophecies. I can't think of anything else that would provide legitimate grounds for accepting the truth of a supposed religion. Only a divine act can validate a divine claim. If we don't find any religion whose claims can provide that sort of evidence, then the natural conclusion would be that there isn't a valid religious claim out there. God hasn't intervened in history. If we find one, then it's fair to say that this particular revelation was provided by God. If we find multiples, then we have to consider the nature of the claims and their compatibility. Quote, If the only way open to us for the knowledge of God was solely that of the reason, the human race would remain in the blackest shadows of ignorance, with this knowledge possessed by only a few after a great deal of time. No one tends with desire and zeal towards something that is not already known to him. But men are ordained by divine providence toward a higher good than human fragility can experience in the present life. Man must learn to desire something with zeal that surpasses the whole state of the present life. But in order to confirm those truths that exceed natural knowledge, we must receive visible manifestations of works that surpass the ability of all nature. Thomas Aquinas Next time, we will consider whether any religions offer us that sort of evidence.